Good morning, and welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin, Texas. My name is Susan Yarbrough, and our lay leader today is Emily Teets. Um, Reverend Barnhouse asked um, somebody to give a brief introduction of me, and so to shorten the process, I will do that. (laughs) Uh, I'm the student intern minister for this energetic and richly textured congregation for the next two years. Uh, In a prior life, I worked in the legal profession for 30 years, And in a breathtaking and gravity-defying leap of faith, I entered seminary last August at the age of 67 and will soon begin my second of three years at Meadville Lombard Theological School in Chicago. That's our Unitarian Universalist Seminary. I'm honored to be working with you and learning from you for the next two years. And now to the real deal, which is the church. Um, We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. And we welcome persons of all religions, ethnic and racial origins, sexual orientations, abilities, and other circumstances. We extend a special welcome to our visitors this morning. We're glad you're here. One of the things that we do here is we recognize that there is a divine spark in everyone. So I want to ask you to take just a moment, please, and greet the people around you and recognize the holiness in them. And now let us say together the words by which we light our chalice. In the light of truth, the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Our call to worship today is by the great Mexican poet Alberto Blanco. In translation, the title of the poem is My Tribe, and in only a few short verses, the poet wonderfully manages to exclude exclusion. Here are Alberto Alberto Blanco's words. From lake to lake, from forest to forest, which is my tribe, I wonder? What is my place? Perhaps I belong to the tribe of those who have no tribe, or to the tribe of black sheep, or to a tribe whose ancestors come from the future, a tribe about to arrive. But if I absolutely must choose, I tell myself, let it be a large tribe, let it be a mighty tribe, a tribe in which no one is left outside the tribe, in which everyone, everything and always, has a sacred place. I do not mean a human tribe. I do not mean a planetary tribe. I do not even mean a universal tribe. I am speaking of a tribe that cannot be spoken of, a tribe that existed always, yet whose existence has not been proven, a tribe that has never existed, but whose existence we can even now make real. Come, let us worship together and make our inclusiveness real. Unitarian Universalism is sometimes referred to as a religion, or a faith, or a movement, or a denomination. But no matter what it's called, it welcomes and embraces and draws from many wisdom sources, such as Judaism, Christianity, non-theistic humanism, Buddhism, Hinduism, and earth- and nature-centered teachings. Interestingly enough, 
Studies have shown that almost 90% of us who call ourselves Unitarian Universalists were not born into it, but came here from other religions, faiths, movements, or denominations because of Unitarian Universalism's inclusiveness and because it does not posit a rigid creed that we have to agree with. We do, however, have common values, traditions, and principles that guide us, which you can find on the pages right before hymn number one in the gray hymnal. And each of our churches develops a mission statement that we remind each other of every Sunday by saying it together. Here at First Unitarian Universalist in Austin, our mission statement is on the upper wall to your left, and please join me in affirming it now in unison. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Both of our short readings this for today teach us about the blessings that come from having a servant's heart, which offers the gifts of unconditional welcome and radical hospitality to strangers, just as this congregation has offered to Sulma Franco this summer and as you're doing now to me. I want to thank you for being here and thank you for letting me be here. The first reading is from the 18th chapter of Genesis and the Hebrew Scriptures. As Abraham was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day, he looked up and saw three men standing nearby. He rushed to meet them. He rushed to meet them, bowed low, and declared that he was their servant, after which he offered them water, rest, and the best bread and milk from his own grain and herd. The men asked about Abraham's wife, Sarah, and told him that in spite of her old age, she would bear a child within a year, and it was so. And as the three visitors departed, Abraham walked with them for a while, during which time he was informed that he had been chosen by God to be the father of a great and powerful nation. And this also came to pass. The second reading is from the 25th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew and the Christian Scriptures. At the time when all the nations are gathered... The judge will turn to those on the right and say, Come close to me and be blessed and happy. For when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you took me in. When I was naked, you gave me clothes. When I was sick, you took care of me. And when I was in prison, you visited me. Then the people to whom these words were spoken will say, Why, when on earth did we do all of these things for you? And the judge will say, Whenever you did it for one of the least of these, all of whom are members of my family, you did it for me. Now is the time in our worship service where we enter a brief period of silence and or prayer in which we acknowledge that we are not only present physically with each other, but that we are also present in in, in a great cloud of witnesses. Today, among all of those being seen and unseen, let us silently share our joys, our sorrows, and our hopes. After the silence and when the music begins, you're invited to go to the rear of the sanctuary and proceed down the wall of windows to light a candle if you wish to do so. 
as we enter the silence together, may we be grateful for the places and people who have given us asylum and refuge. May we remember that we are all related and all members of the same household. May we commit to connecting with people who have been pushed to the edges of society and to being a voice for the thousands who have no voice. When almost every one of us in this room was a child, one of the first rules our parents laid down and reminded us of often was, don't talk to strangers. That was and still is good advice for young children, especially given how much more dangerous the world is now than it was half a century ago. But that rule, like many of the ones we grew up with, grew up with ran counter to other things we were hearing and reading as children, and that created a lot of confusion, at least for me. For example, while we were hearing, don't talk to strangers, many of us were also reading the Old Testament, which says, no less than 36 times, you shall welcome the stranger. You shall welcome the stranger. And the Hebrew verb is imperative. You shall welcome the stranger, for you yourselves were once strangers in Egypt. Or we were noticing in the New Testament that Jesus, the radical Jewish rabbi, was constantly welcoming and befriending and listening to strangers such as prostitutes, lepers, and beggars. But the real problem with the don't talk to strangers rule is not the confusion it may have engendered in us as children. Instead, it's the fact that the rule still echoes unconsciously in many of our adult lives, and its remnants and vestiges still have the capacity to diminish and limit our ability to offer deep listening and heartfelt hospitality to people who come to us from other places on the earth. And even more fundamentally, the don't talk to strangers rule still wields enormous power when it comes to welcoming and listening to those parts of our inner selves from which we are estranged and which keep us from the growth into wholeness that will enable us to set out the welcome mat and prepare the table for the increasing numbers of strangers who want and need our help and our embrace. Ten years ago, uh, last month, I retired from 30 years in the legal profession. It was a great day. <laughs> I spent the first 12 years as a criminal lawyer, followed by 18 years as a judge on the United States Immigration Court. And what I'll be talking a little bit about today is how my work as a judge altered the course of my emotional and spiritual life. When most of us think about immigration, and it's hard not to think about it these days, we think primarily about the recent humanitarian crisis on the border or about undocumented workers who come here and do those hard jobs for low pay and lots of exploitation. Or maybe we think of technical workers such as engineers and computer scientists who come here largely sponsored by corporate America or perhaps young people on student visas at our local colleges and universities, or maybe artists and performing troops on tours through the United States, or children adopted from other countries. But few of us think very much about people who come here seeking asylum and refuge and safe haven because they have been greatly harmed in body and spirit in their own countries. 
During my 18 years as a judge, I heard thousands of cases brought by people who had been tortured and persecuted in their countries, had made their way to this country, and were seeking asylum in court proceedings that one by one broke my heart, taught me the beginnings of what I need to learn about welcoming inner and outer strangers, and changed me irrevocably and forever as a judge and a person. Under American immigration law, a person qualifies for a grant of asylum if he or she can prove that they have been tortured or persecuted in their own country or have a well-founded fear of such persecution if sent back to their country because of their race, their religion, their nationality, their membership in a particular social group, or their political opinion. The torture or persecution must have been inflicted by the government or a group that the government cannot control, and things such as domestic violence, random street crimes, and discrimination have traditionally not been grounds for obtaining asylum. Only one or more of the five grounds specified in the statute, race, religion, nationality, social group, or political opinion, is a proper predicate on which a judge may grant asylum. The asylum seekers whose cases came before me were all strangers to me, not only because I didn't know them, but most especially because I, like most other Americans, simply have no idea about what really goes on in troubled countries. And when we superimpose our lack of knowledge about politics and geopolitics and even just basic geography onto differences of, of language and dress and religion and experience, we start to realize how much we live in our own personal and national hermetically sealed spacesuits, how much we labor under constructs of otherness that are often fed and fueled by the media, and how hard and how far we have to reach in order to give meaning to the concepts we mouth so readily, such as the brotherhood of man, or the web of life, or we are one, or even Unitarian Universalism. Besides its much-needed lessons of gratitude and humility, the primary blessing of my job was how it taught me to listen deeply to people who had been harmed and persecuted, to hear the subtext of their narratives, to see the scars on their bodies and the fault lines in their psyches and their souls, and to eventually welcome them into my heart and my country with an openness that I never thought was possible for me and that still requires effort and consciousness on my part every day. But the process of learning to listen and welcome was a gradual one, and in the remaining minutes, I want to tell you some of the preliminary and subsequent lessons I received along the way. The first thing I learned is that there are so many parts of myself from which I was and still am estranged. The famous Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung called this our shadow, those parts of our personality that we don't acknowledge because they don't fit our conscious identity or what we would like to think of ourselves. For example, when I heard the testimony of Esteban Marcial Mosqueda, a Cuban citizen who was sent to prison for five years for being unemployed and tortured there because he was a negro azul, a man whose skin was so black that it appeared to be navy blue, my own inner stranger appeared from the shadows and said, I'm not a racist, but 
Why is it easier for me to remember the features of a lighter-skinned African-American than the features of one who is very dark? And when I heard the case of Josue Maldonado Ortiz, a Pentecostal Salvadoran who was accosted by a military death squad and forced to strip naked, stand in a field of beans and rice, and eat his pocket Bible page by page, my inner stranger showed up and asked, why do you secretly think that Pentecostals and members of fundamentalist denominations are simple-minded? Or when I heard the case of Khalid Talhami, a law-abiding Palestinian who was used as a human shield by Israeli soldiers when they wanted to roust and toss Palestinian neighborhoods, my inner stranger tugged at the sleeve of my judicial robe and said, now really, don't you think that this man is an exception and that the Arabs and Muslims are mostly responsible for all the trouble in the Middle East? And when Elena Segura Jimenez testified about being gang-raped and gang-sodomized during the Nicaraguan Civil War by a band of Contras after they had followed her home and she had offered them water, my stranger said, why in the world would any woman talk to a group of men she didn't know? And finally, when Daniel Quetzal Monzon, an indigenous Guatemalan Indian, recounted how he was captured by the military, which had murdered and disappeared so many of his own people, and was, was then tortured because he would not voice support for the government, my stranger kept asking, God, why didn't he just tell them what they wanted to hear so they would leave him alone? So in just five cases, I was confronted with my own shadowy inner strangers of color discrimination, intellectual arrogance, religious prejudice, blaming the victim, and cowardice. These stunning appearances by inner strangers then led me to my first real understanding of the old saying, you can never give more than you have. After living in my own body and mind for almost 69 years, I'm often inclined to think there's not much estrangement left. I know all my own physical and emotional warts and wrinkles. I've been to therapy. I've mellowed out nicely. I'm more patient. I don't get easily upset by things or people I can't control. I'm a good card-carrying liberal. But it's never long before another inner stranger emerges from the shadows, causes me huge discomfort about something I've thought or said or done that is inconsistent with who I thought I was, and once again shows me that I cannot welcome and be comfortable with outer strangers unless I know how to welcome and be at ease with my own inner strangers. So how do I and we do this? For me, the process usually begins with remembering that we were all once strangers in some kind of personal Egypt, that each of us at some time in our life had our face pressed up against the glass of something we yearned for with an aching and a longing that simply defied words. I also to remember, try to remember that in so many ways, that very sense of longing is what keeps us alive and is the secret source within us that desires life and its continuation, and that shapes and precedes our thoughts, our intentions, our passions, our emotions, and our actions. 
And because of that experience of longing, deep within each of us is the humanity and the ability to translate our memories of pain and alienation and our desire to be received and included into the ability to welcome others. But the translation from memory of estrangement and longing to the practice of welcome is a hard one, and the only lexicon I've found that really works for me is to approach the strange parts of myself, not with fear and judgment, but with curiosity, openness, and wonder. I like interesting dreams, and I also like good acronyms. I recently had a dream in which I gave my therapist a toy cow with the words curiosity, openness, and wonder written one underneath the other on its left flank. The first letter of each of the three words was capitalized, C-O-W, and on the little platform on which the cow stood, I had written the sacred cow of therapy. (laughs) And so in the same way that a good therapist or a good friend or a good parent or a good partner will will receive and treat us with curiosity, openness, and wonder, We can treat ourselves and our inner strangers in gentle and loving and self-compassionate ways that will serve as practice fields and proving grounds for welcoming outer strangers wherever we may find them and for hearing and responding to their pain with the same attentive and patient kindness we have given our own. I'm sorry to report that this is probably a lifelong process, but every time I engage in it thoughtfully and wholeheartedly, I feel deeply blessed. When someone else or some part of myself feels strange, I think, where has this person or this part come from? Why are they appearing now? Why do they unsettle me? What are they seeking from me? What can they teach me? And how can I allow them to be near me without being frightened by them? When in my life was I harmed physically, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually? What did I need in the way of refuge and healing? How did I seek what I needed? What helped me the most? And there's a good chance that the answer to the last question is simply a listening ear. As the world outside of the United States continues to implode and explode, there are and will be more and more people coming to us asking for asylum. They will at first seem strange to us, as we will to them, and notwithstanding the words enshrined on the Statue of Liberty, asylum law in this country is not generous to them. In the current swirl about immigration reform, and the three primary legislative goals of creating a path to citizenship or legality for people without documents, bringing in the so-called best and brightest of skilled professionals, and securing the border, people who have been greatly harmed in other countries have been all but forgotten. But these are the ones who come out of great tribulation, and these are the ones who changed and continue to transform my life. I want to tell you that anything you do for them to welcome them will be enough and that it is altogether moral to start small and to stay small. We often search for a a lofty, high-profile task 
when all we are summoned and called to do is to lift the spirits of the person right in front of us. Welcoming can take so many forms, from a simple nod or smile or handshake, or a few minutes of heartfelt empathy, or long hours of listening. After Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans in 2005, and thousands of its victims ended up in squalid conditions at the Astrodome, Many Houstonians rushed to help with relief efforts involving food and clothing and money. And amidst all of this wonderful giving was another little-known project organized by some psychotherapists there, which called itself A Time to Talk. These selfless and compassionate women and men gave unpaid hours of their time listening to narratives of displacement and homelessness and grief and loss that will probably haunt them for many years to come. And that will happen to us, too, if we decide to listen to and welcome all the parts of ourselves so we can better learn how to listen to and welcome all the strangers who come here wanting the peace and freedom and safety that we already have. Over the course of 18 years on the bench, it slowly but forcefully dawned on me that the integrity of my own growth depends on the courage and vulnerability with which I greet and welcome and integrate both the strangers I find within my own heart and mind and the outer strangers I encounter as I walk the contours of the earth. French psychoanalyst and literary critic Julia Kristeva has written that the stranger is neither a race nor a nation. Uncanny foreignness is within us. We are our own foreigners. These words sometimes scare me, but I also take comfort in these more soothing words gathered from the writings of Irish Catholic scholar and poet John O'Donohue, who instructs us that we need to learn and maintain a readiness to follow ourselves in all our possible unfoldings. The stranger is a mirror mirror of our own thoughts and emotions and longings, And looking at life from his or her point of view can only expand our horizons of imagination and perception. The stranger rescues us from our false limitations, shows us the vital parts of ourselves that we have unwisely banished during times of pain or difficulty, reminds us that the wonder of human life is the generous diversity of presences that dwell in the house of each individual soul, and teaches us that all of those presences within each soul belong together in the greater human soul. True belonging, he says, is hospitable to difference, for it knows that genuine identity can only emerge from the real conversation between self and otherness. There can be no true self without the embrace of the other, and it is only when the outsider comes in to live among us that the subtlety and depth of our way of life become clearer. When we lose hospitality to ourselves, there is no longer any presence or welcome for the surprise and wonder of new things and new people. One of the bright lights in the amazing and annoying city called Houston is Dr. Jill Carroll, a former professor at Rice University who is trained in philosophy and who speaks and writes widely about religious tolerance. 
In a recent talk at the Jung Center, Dr. Carroll described her very conservative father's coming to terms of endearment, not only with his daughter's partnership with another woman, but also about their adoption of a beautiful African-American baby boy, and how we can all write a new page or a new chapter in the book of love every time we choose to set aside our attachments to how we think things and people and families should look. I believe so strongly that when we choose to welcome and love and accept inner parts of ourselves which repel us, to face our fears about strangers, to set aside our attachments to how we think countries should look, to unzip our personal and national spacesuits and step outside of our comfort zones, it is then that we will be most able to welcome those who are not from us, but who are most assuredly of us. And when we are able to have the strong minds and loving hearts required for this monumental task, we will at last be able to bravely defy our parents and our ancestors as we talk more and more to strangers, provide those strangers with the dignity and sanctuary of human presence, and feel a joyous impulse to welcome and care for the wider world, much as our right hand would not hesitate to bandage our left. And to our own surprise and delight, we will surely find ourselves greeting and blessing all the strangers in words something like this. Ni hao. Hello. Bienvenidos a los Estados Unidos, su casa nueva. Welcome to the United States, your new home. Namaste. My soul recognizes and bows to your soul. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. May we bind up your wounds. May you be happy. May you always be safe from harm. May you set your tents among us. May you teach us what we need to know about our own alienation and attachments and longings. May we catch your melodies and harmonies as you learn to sing God's song in this strange land. May you know that you are seen and heard and remembered. May we build for you a house of belonging. And may we bless you as you and your coming here have blessed us. Amen. At this time, please say with me the words for extinguishing the chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. May the grace of the Spirit continue to bless this warm and welcoming congregation. May the congregation continue to live its mission and to be a beacon and a lighthouse of sanctuary and hope. And in Hebrew we say, Let us bless the source of life, whose flame kindles our commitment to search for ever more ways of living our freedom and sharing our love. Amen. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.